This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for tuning in. Laszlo Montgomery here with another China History Podcast episode. Listen, before I get started, I have completely revamped my Patreon page and made it more easy and enticing than ever to get on board and join my personal army of backers, benefactors, sustainers, and advisors in helping to keep this family program running at full speed. If you're interested, head on over to the official website at teacup.media for pretty much everything I'm doing these days, and through that very portal, you'll be able to access my Patreon page, and show me some kindness and good loving. Thanks for that. The Chinese diaspora, the history of the overseas Chinese, especially in Southeast Asia. What can I say? No matter how many books I read, or documentaries I watch, or people I meet, I can't get enough of this broad subject, and going back to the beginning of the CHP, I keep returning to this inexhaustible goldmine of stories and history from past few hundred years. So in this episode, I want to introduce these Gongsis, the island of Borneo, which I'm sure everyone has heard of before, and the story of these tens of thousands of Chinese immigrants, always from the two same provinces, Fujian and Guangdong, who came to the west coast of this third largest island on planet Earth, and in true Chinese immigrant fashion, built a world for themselves and left behind a legacy that some arguably call the first functioning democracy in Asia. That's where the term Gongsi Republic came about. And it all took place in Kalimantan Barat, Western Kalimantan, and what's today the Great Republic of Indonesia. A Gongsi, now this is the Cantonese pronunciation, the Mandarin term Gongsi is simply a company or corporation. But that isn't the meaning in the case of these Gongsis of Southeast Asia, the Ku Gongsi of Malaysia, the Nian and Gihin Gongsis of Singapore. Those are perhaps more well-known. I haven't gotten to them yet, but I plan to one day. These Gongsis in West Borneo were akin to brotherhoods or associations operating as these joint stock companies with democratically elected leaders and a militia, all combining their labors and efforts for a common goal. In this episode, we're going to focus on the Gongsis who thrived for a while in this one northwest portion of the island of Borneo, again, today known as Kalimantan. Four of the five main linguistic groups that made up the Chinese diaspora prior to the 20th century are part of today's story. But overwhelmingly, this history that took place in western Borneo between the mid-18th century to the late 19th century, 1750 to 1884 to be precise, the glory years of Qianlong to Guangxi in China, it was a Hakka story. Hokkien, Teochew, Cantonese, yeah, they were there too, but not in the great numbers like the Hakka Chinese. So I think we can agree most everyone has heard of Borneo. I mentioned, and excluding Australia, of course, Borneo is the third largest island in the world, behind Greenland and New Guinea. 
the indigenous people, often caricatured in the West as these native headhunters of wild Borneo, were known as the Dayak people. This is just a Malay word that means either savages or the original people of this land. Dayak, it's a catch-all term to describe the hundred or so different tribes of people who lived in the interior of the island, engaging in hunting and -and slash-and-burn agriculture. They don't all speak the same Austronesian language or have the same culture, but eh, to the layperson such as myself, these indigenous people all had to wear this Dayak name tag. They weren't Malay, nor were they Muslim. In China, the earliest contact with people from Borneo was in the Song Dynasty, when some official mentioned these people from Borneo, who had called at the Fujian port of Quanzhou. Borneo was referred to as Polozhou in Mandarin today. Since about the Yuan Dynasty, 13th-14th centuries, Chinese ships called on this land. During Yongle's time in the Ming, when Admiral Zheng He was engaged in his travels, there's a mention of a king or maharaja of Borneo who sought out the protection of the Ming Dynasty umbrella. There wasn't too much mention of Borneo in the Chinese historical annals because the place was not considered terribly important or strategic. Around the end of the 15th century, Borneo's recorded history starts to get written down when the Brunei Sultanate was founded by Malay traders from Malacca. It soon became a regular spot visited by Portuguese and Spanish traders. Malays called the land Kalimantan. Sultanates were established on the north and western coast of the island that faced the South China Sea. Interestingly, no attempts were made by these sultans to colonize the land. In the mid-1700s, when Chinese vessels started showing up with more regularity, there were about two dozen Malay, Javanese, and Arab political entities all engaged in trade and earning revenue by taxing those who called on the ports and waterways under their jurisdiction. On the west coast, the three main sultanates that are central to our story were in Sambas, Pantianak, and Mempawa and please refer to the map at the teacup.media website. The equator ran right through the northern portion of the island. Even today, the capital of West Kalimantan, Pantianak, is called the Equator City. So keep in mind, throughout the entirety of our story, it was always hot and humid. And it was at Pantianak that Borneo's mightiest river, the Kapuas, emptied into the South China Sea. This most important river in Borneo is also Indonesia's longest. The Sultanate of Pontianak had been founded in 1771 as an Islamic Malay state. And they, along with the sultans of Sambas and Mempawa, had been the ones who first sent out the call to the Chinese to come work the mines in their lands. The flags of three nations today fly over the island of Borneo. The northern part of the island is known as East Malaysia and is comprised of the two Malay states of Sarawak and Sabah. And surrounded by Sarawak on three sides is the nation of Brunei. Overwhelmingly, the remainder of the island is comprised of the provinces of North, South, East, West, and Central Kalimantan. Again, part of Indonesia. The South China Sea is to the north, and then from the east to south are the Sulu, Celebes, and Java Seas. 
On a map, you'll see Borneo is located midway between Sumatra and Sulawesi. In this episode, we will concern ourselves only with Kalimantan. It was to this part of this massive island, mainly from Sambas to Pontianak, that the Chinese came to engage in mining and other commercial ventures. Today, by car, it would take you about four and a half hours to make the drive between these two cities, so it's not too great a distance. The ports were located in the coastal cities where the Malay sultans and Panambahans engaged in trade and commerce and where they had their palaces from which they ruled their lands. Most of our story takes place in four cities, Sambas and Mantrado in the north and Mandor and Pontianak in the south. Roads were few and the main means of transport in this land of a thousand rivers, as it's called, were on the many waterways that took you from the coast to the center of the thick jungles and mountains inland, parts of which even to this day have not been explored fully. The Dayak people were the oppressed indigenous people of our story. They were there first, followed by the Malays, and then in 1595, the Dutch came a-calling, looking for spices. They really liked the place and ended up sticking around Indonesia for 350 years. They figure quite large in this history I'm going to tell. And depending on whose side you're on, they act as the antagonists. And among the Dutch, until they were dissolved in 1800, the VOC acted on behalf of the Netherlands in all matters related to trade and commerce in Borneo and elsewhere in today's Indonesia. The VOC, that stood for the Vereinigte Ostindische Compagnie, the Dutch East India Company, formed in 1610, and just like their rivals over in the British East India Company, they had a monopoly in their country on all trade in these parts. The VOC kept their head office in Batavia, on the island of Java, which of course is the capital city of Jakarta today. The spices were located in the Maluku Islands, in the Banda Sea, between Sulawesi and Papua, the Indonesian half of the island of New Guinea. The gold mines of West Borneo were all located inland, and the sultans relied on the Dayaks to engage in their modest and somewhat inefficient gold mining operations, from which the sultans received an agreed-upon percentage paid to them. And after a while, the size of this revenue sort of became a little bit too modest for the sultans, who were looking for a piece of some bigger action than what the Dayaks were able to produce from their efforts. The sultans had heard that over in China, these people were quite advanced and adept at mining for minerals, metals, and precious stones, especially the Hakkas. They had the system and the technology down pat. Initially, word got round to Chinese operating in other parts in Indonesia, mostly from Palembang and southeast Sumatra, as well as the two offshore islands of Bangka and Belitong, where they worked the tin mines. And they answered the sultan's call first to come to Mempawa and engage in mining operations there. But their numbers were small and the opportunities were vast. So these first arrivals got the word out to their friends and family in Chiayingzhou, today's Meizhou, the center of Hakka culture and the Hakka people in the eastern part of Guangdong, just north of the Diochu people who lived in the coastal cities of Chaozhou, Shantou, and Jieyang. During the Qing dynasty, Meizhou was called Jiaying, 
all the horrors and humiliation that would be suffered by the Chinese nation were still relatively far in the future, but nonetheless, many Hakkas, eager to try their luck in this land of untapped natural resources, banded together and sailed almost due south to see for themselves. Besides the absolute necessities of life that they could pack up and take with them, these Hakka men also brought along their gods, cults, clan relations, and temple networks. This included the earth god Di Gong, who the Hakka people also called Da Bo Gong, as well as the protector of all Hakkas, San Shan Guo Wang. They also brought the goddess Tian Ho, or Ma Zu. Ma Zu was a major deity amongst the Hokkien as well. There was also Guan Gong, who we looked at a long time ago in CHP episode 81, covering the life of Guan Yu. He was the embodiment of trust, loyalty, and bravery, three virtues that were in constant demand throughout the entirety of their time in Borneo. The other major goddess was Guan Yin, whose temples were called Guan Yin Ting, and so numerous did they become. The word Galentang was adopted as the Indonesian word for any sort of Chinese temple. So they started coming, not in very big numbers at first. No one was looking to settle down and call the place home. The end game was always to strike it rich and then head back to their Hakka homeland in eastern Guangdong. The other sultans saw what was going on in Mempawa and knew a good thing when they saw it. So they began to more proactively call for more of these Chinese men to come and work the gold mines of their particular sultanate. And they rolled out the red carpet for these rapidly increasing numbers of Chinese, supplying them, at a price of course, paid in gold, with all the tools, equipment, and provisions needed to do this backbreaking job in the equatorial heat. As long as the Hakka Chinese miners stuck to gold mining and didn't branch out into trade and commerce or import arms and ammunition or compete with the sultans on any income-generating enterprise, they were satisfied. The problems began once enough Chinese had made it to these shores and after they fell into the groove and serious amounts of gold was being extracted from the land. And like it always is in the mining business, some mines perform better than others and this caused some degree of hard feelings between the competing sultans. With all this new money sloshing around, it caused no small amount of bickering between the sultans and the port city of Sinkawang, as well as in Pontianic and Mempawa. As was the case in California, Australia, and other parts of the world, the word spread like wildfire back in these home communities in China, and more Chinese started packing up and heading out to these increasingly mature destinations. By the end of the 1700s, some 40,000 Chinese were digging in the mines of West Borneo, already outnumbering the Malay population. The more wealth that was created from mining, the more the trouble started. The sultan started to become greedy and began demanding more and more, treating the Chinese as a resource to be exploited as they wished. They grew rich selling land leases, levying taxes on anything that could be reasonably taxed, and of course dealing with the Hakka miners and all manners of profitable trading and commercial activities. Besides the Hakkas, more Hokkien and Diochus also started arriving. And just as San Francisco was called Gold Mountain, this place too 
in Western Borneo started to be referred to as Chinshan, and the most golden of all gold mountains was in the town of Mandor, 35 miles inland from the coastal city of Mempawa, where the first Chinese arrivals had started to migrate to. And despite the shared endgame for all miners of staying only long enough to strike it rich, a very mature and thriving overseas Chinese community that was never meant to be started to develop. Because of the mining know-how and technologies brought with them from China, involving advanced hydraulics and mechanical techniques, the Hakka production rate was far beyond what the Dayaks had been able to achieve using their relatively primitive ways. The way the Chinese did it, mining wasn't a matter of every man for himself, individually panning for gold in the rivers. In Borneo, everyone jointly working a mine all had a vested interest in its success, so their mutual efforts and hard work was carried out with this in mind. And this kind of teamwork required organization and leadership. There were two main problems that the Chinese faced down in West Borneo. One, of course, was the sultans, who viewed them as a cash cow to be exploited to its fullest potential. And the other one concerned the Dayaks. They were not people to be taken lightly. With their numbers, home field advantage, and their effective use of blowpipes and poison darts, they were by no means some bare-chested primitive people who could be pushed around and beaten back so easy. Like any indigenous people, they viewed their lands to be sacred, and when Chinese miners stripped their leaseholds bare and moved on to the next gold strike, they butted heads with the Dayaks. And so with this state of affairs, the Chinese, so far from home, began to discuss ways to organize for their common defense against these two forces. As they began to do this, they all split up into their various linguistic groups or by their clans or surnames or through the temples or cults that they followed. And they began to form these hues, a hui. There's nothing more than a club or a society, an association or organization. And after the formation of these many hues, they were able to collectively take care of matters of mutual concern, including paying off the sultans and the dayaks, as well as matters regarding irrigation, common defense, and dealing with local disputes that arose with some regularity. The Chinese in West Borneo were still mostly Hakka, and to a lesser extent Hoklo Chinese. They didn't know this yet, but would soon learn. Their biggest headache concerned the Dutch, who had been sniffing around West Borneo since 1698. The Sultan of Banten had, in 1661, already extended his rule to West Borneo, and this Sultan had allowed himself later on to be beaten into submission by the VOC to the point where he eventually became a vassal of the company. And using this Sultan of Banten's toehold in West Borneo, this was the doorway that the Dutch used to set themselves up there. The Sultan of Banten needed some muscle to go deal with a rival in West Borneo. So the VOC, and the Dutch East India Company, they sent a small force to West Borneo to aid this sultan and made fast work of his rival. And whilst in West Borneo, the Dutch saw the extent of the mining operations going on, which back then was nothing compared to what the Chinese would later begin extracting once they arrived. But it was enough gold and diamonds for them to take note, and the Dutch in turn informed the Batavia head office that it would behoove them to 
get to know this place better. In the early part of the 18th century, the Dutch set themselves up at Pontianac, and in no time at all had established a modest trading entrepot. And as the Chinese started to arrive in greater numbers, the Dutch had become the most potent force to reckon with on the west part of the island of Borneo. And starting in the 1750s, when the Chinese started arriving in greater numbers, the Dutch figured out right quick they were the engines that were powering the whole economy. And just as the Malay sultans had done before them, the VOC saw these Chinese miners as hmm, their own potential revenue source who could be exploited in all kinds of ways, most notably as a pool of tax revenue. In many ways, these mostly Hakka Chinese who came to West Borneo to engage in the mining business acted in very much the same way as their brethren working overseas in other places. They worked incredibly hard, minded their own business, stuck together, and did their utmost to blend into the background and get as rich as they could off the land. Then suddenly along came these strangers from far away who were tough as nails, well-armed, and who had the temerity to declare authority over them and demanded a piece of their action, and offering very little, if nothing, in return. And here lie the crux of the problem that would bring these two groups into conflict for the next century. And it was the threat that the Dutch posed to the Chinese which led them to take steps to more aggressively organize their ranks into more formidable entities than these hues. And this is how these Gongsi republics came into being. There were two main ones that we'll look at in this episode, the Lanfang Gongsi and the Heshun Zongting. The Lanfang Gongsi, this was a pure Hakka enterprise that had its beginnings with a Jiaying Hakka named Luo Fang Bo. Like many before him, and like his fellow Hakka, Hong Xiuquan, who wasn't even born yet, Law was a failed scholar who failed to pass the civil service exams that provided one with a ticket to a government career. Law Fangbo was not only an educated man, familiar with the ins and outs of all the Confucian classics, but was also a first-rate practitioner of the Chinese martial arts, and part of the Law Fangbo lore said he could cross rivers riding on the backs of crocodiles. He was one of many Hakka men who caught the Nanyang bug that infected one with dreams of riches that could be had in the many trading ports of Southeast Asia. When he set out to seek his fortune, West Borneo was the new hot place that many were heading to, and coming from the epicenter of the Hakka world, he was already quite familiar with the place, and in the direction of Pontianak he went. Upon his arrival there, he began to get himself set up. But Pontianak had become a place where Hokkien Chinese from southern Fujian gravitated to in bigger numbers. And not being one of them, Luo Fangbo decided to try his luck elsewhere and ended up in Mandor. And it was in the city of Mandor where the history of the Hakka Lanfang Gongsi, or Lanfang Republic, was made. The Hues, once they reached a certain size, would establish themselves as a Gongsi or Gongsi in Mandarin. Whereas the Hues were limited to someone of your own clan or village, the Gongsis were much bigger, and for many, not limited exclusively to one linguistic group. These Gongsis were open to anyone who swore an oath, 
exhibited loyalty to the Gongsi, and put up their share capital. And one other thing, the Gongsi members had to know how to fight. Hakas had a lot of practice with that, going back to their little corner of Guangdong province. When called upon by Gongsi leaders, the members of the Gongsi had to lay down their tools, grab their muskets or rifles, and defend their unit from threats by disgruntled Dayaks, pissed off at the Gongsi for encroaching on their lands and ripping the hills apart with their gold mining operations. So these Gongsis were a very high-octane version of the Hui, and each Gongsi lived by their own set of rules. And all of this was nothing new. Traditions and customs from the old country were simply put into use in a new land. So Luofangbo started going around all these Gongsis in and around Mandor. And after a period of time, using his charisma and no doubt his high degree of education, Luofangbo created this one master Gongsi to rule them all. And this Lanfang Gongsi that he founded... It was purely a Hakka organization. If you weren't a Jiaying Hakka, you needed divine intervention to become a member. You know, Liang Qichao included Luofang Bo in his famous biographies of China's eight great colonial heroes, Zhong Guozhi, Min, Ba Da, Wei Ren, Zhuan. Fortunately for all of us in the 21st century, this institution, the Lanfang Gongsi, is very, very well documented through a combination of not being from relatively that long ago, 18th, 19th century, and the enthusiasm with which many Dutch, Malay, Indonesian, and Chinese writers documented these very complicated times. There's a lot of information for anyone wishing to read the source materials, and you could drill down quite deep. So in the year 1777, a year after the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the British colonies in America, Luofang Bo formally established the Lanfang Gongsi. In any society, everyone knows their strength in numbers. Luofang Bo wasn't the only one who saw what the Dutch were made of and the quality of their firepower and fighting ability. The Hues had served their purpose, as did the Gongsis. Now the Gongsis had to band together into bigger and more formidable entities in order to defend their very lucrative livelihoods in the mines in and around their base in Mandor. The other great organization that would become a rival to the Lanfang Gongsi was the Hexun Zongting. Let's look at them now. They were founded one year before the Lanfang Gongsi in 1776. Their base was 60 miles north of Mandor in Mantrado, just to the east of the important port city of Sinkawang. The Hexun Zongting was an association of about 10,000 members spread out over 14 Gongsis who all operated in and around Montrado. A Zongting, shoot man, that word isn't even in the Pleco app. Zong means general or head of or to sum up. And a Ting, in this example, is a hall or assembly building. So they set up this assembly hall, this Zongting in Montrado, and this building served as the meeting place where the leaders met. It also served as the high court, site of all important ceremonies and rituals. This was the center of their life, where the main statues of the most important gods, Da Bo Gong and Guan Gong, stood. And amongst these 14 Gongsis were both Hakka and Hokkien people. 
And there were also plenty of half-haka, half-hokyen as well. And these people were called Banshan-ke. Like its rival to the south, the Hsun Zongting was a completely self-contained political, judicial, economic, and military entity. And the ones who ruled at the top did so at the consent of the governed. That is to say, they were voted into their positions. They didn't gain them due to nepotism or backroom deals. They issued their own currencies and collected taxes and fees from its members. They carried out diplomacy with the Dayaks and the Malays, and later on with the Dutch as well. The laws they enforced on the members of the organization were extremely harsh. One of the penalties went like this, quote, Burglary with theft is punishable by death unless what has been stolen can be returned. In that case, the culprit will be set free after his heir has been cut off. End quote. Another went, quote, In the mines, the gold must be raised with all present. Should this rule be trespassed upon by washing the gold at night with the aim of stealing it, the death penalty shall apply. End quote. What we'll find out soon is that these two main Gongsi republics, as they were also referred to, it was only the Lanfang down in Mandor that opted to make a separate peace with the Dutch and the Malay sultans. They surely didn't like having to pay them off, but matters remained calmer with them than between the Dutch and the more belligerent He Shun Zongting, based in Montrado. Between their founding in 1776 and their demise in 1854, 78 years, these two opponents, when they aren't negotiating, will be fighting with each other. And even from within the He Xun Zongting itself, the 14-member Gongsis will not always get along. A problem that oh, all republics had to face from time to time. The Dutch had this dream to essentially piggyback on the industry, reliability, ingenuity, and determination of the Chinese in West Borneo and strong-arm them enough to earn maximum profits that, well, theoretically, would garner the Dutch a steady and hefty stream of guilders. In July 1779, the VOC had been able to finagle a deal with the Sultans that essentially gave them preferential treatment for all the commerce and trade carried out at Pontianak and anyone of Chinese descent who lived or operated in this area were under Dutch authority and subject to any taxes they demanded. The Dutch had negotiated very hard to get this concession, I guess you could call it, that gave them a license to milk the Chinese. It sounds terrible and unfair from a Chinese perspective, but I kid you not, after a dozen years of trying and falling for every trick in the book that these Hakka and Hoklo miners and negotiators threw at them, the VOC failed in its mission to get that one thing they wanted, that golden ring, a dream they would chase for decades to come, sometimes achieving it, sometimes not, of a per capita poll tax on all the Chinese in West Borneo. In October 1791, the Dutch negotiators finally waved the white flag and gave up trying. They had simply expended too much effort with too little to show for. And the He Shun Zongting and the Lanfang Republic, or Gongsi, they were too big and powerful, too organized, and too determined to not allow the Dutch to muscle in on their profits. And just like when Roy Scheider said in Jaws, we're going to need a bigger boat, and so it was with the Dutch as they 
walked away from West Borneo. They'd have to come back again one day, bigger and badder, before they'd be sufficiently ready to take on these Chinese. For now, as the 18th century wound down, things were starting to heat up in Europe. Napoleon was already making his way to the top. In 1804, he'll crown himself Emperor of La France. And as for the Netherlands, 1806 to 1810, the Kingdom of Holland was proclaimed. And for the Dutch, it was all hands on deck. Everyone got pulled from this arena and sent back to the European continent to deal with more pressing issues closer to home. The Napoleonic Wars will rage from 1803 to 1815, and this is going to lead to a number of drastic changes to the Dutch overseas colonies, including their standing in West Borneo. And when we reconvene for part two, we'll pick up in 1818, when the Dutch return after a spectacular period of unbridled prosperity for the Chinese in West Borneo. So, it sure is my hope that you found this topic interesting and the telling of the story compelling enough to return for the exciting conclusion of the Gongsi Republics of West Borneo. Today's episode was only the setup for the fireworks that are about to happen. And that is going to be that for this time. Once again, Patreon, join up, all kinds of great things there, including the Teacup Media Discord Tea Room, where you can often find me. My deepest thanks to everyone who has joined already or donated to the show via various other begging bowls I maintain. Again, go to the website at teacup.media to find all those links, as well as a listing of all the terms used in this and every episode. Okay, sorry for prattling on. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Hot and Dry, Los Angeles, California. Please come back again next time for what I'm already predicting will be another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.